You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Good morning and welcome back to Real Presence Live. I am your host, Blake Ritterman, along with... With John Clark. John Clark. I almost forgot there for a second. Yes. <laughs> it's great to be with you, John. We had a great conversation with uh, Jennifer Anderson from Redeeming Grace Counseling right here in Fargo, just talking about uh, New Year's resolutions. Um, man, just a lot there, John, that yeah. we could go into a lot deeper with our guests. She does such wonderful work, and you know she's got such a joyful approach. Just yeah. the way she presents herself is so joyful. And always bringing back to the forefront, you know, the need that this is God's work with mm-hmm. with the human person, that for us to give love away, we have to receive love from our Father in heaven. Again, that's redeeminggracecounseling.com and the number 701-353-9979. So on Real Presence Live, in this segment, we have a special pre-recorded message um, with, with the death of Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, many bishops across the world are... are um, you know, sending messages, you know, and reflections upon the great uh, life of the man of, of Pope Benedict XVI. And we have a special pre-recorded uh, presentation from Bishop Robert Barron from uh, the Diocese of Winona, Rochester. And just reflecting on the enduring lessons from Pope Benedict XVI. Again, this is a pre-recorded session from, from Bishop Barron. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the senior publishing director. We just learned that the great Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI has passed away. The 265th pontiff of the Catholic Church lived for almost a century. And so today on this special bonus episode, I'm joined with Bishop Barron to discuss his life, his enduring impact, and his key ideas and contributions. Bishop, it's kind of a somber day, but also a joyous one in a way, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. You know, obviously it's a sad day. Uh, he was a great man and uh, one of the most uh, consequential players in the church really of the last hundred years, I would say. But, you know, for people of a spiritual vision in the Christian faith, it's a, it's a day of, of joy as he finds the friendship with the Lord that he always uh, longed for. So, um, yeah, it's a sad day, as you say, somber, but at the same time we rejoice uh, in, his, in his union with the Lord. Joseph Ratzinger, as he was known before becoming Pope, was born in 1927. So this man lived almost a hundred years. The number of events that he witnessed and was a part of both within the church and in the wider world is enormous. Um, We could spend hours talking about his whole biography, but can you give us a basic arc of the life of Ratzinger Benedict? I'll see if I can. There's so much to say, but just maybe a few highlights. As you say, born 1927, he's from the southern part of Germany from Bavaria, which is a deeply Catholic uh, culture, and he was formed very much by that. His, his father was a fierce anti-Nazi, and um, y- young Josef comes of age during the, you know, those Hitler years, and he's a teenager at the end of the war and for a brief time is in the Hitler youth, but just the way that any young you know, man was drawn into that. At, at the very end of the war, he was actually involved in, um, in defending the, you know, the fatherland, but he was just a kid at the time. Um, joins the seminary, becomes a priest, and uh, does pastoral work for a very short time, but he's everyone knew he was destined for an academic career because his brilliance in that field was was evident early on. Uh, 
he's kind of a, a, a phenomenon in a way because as a very young man, he gets these uh, important positions in German uh, universities in Bonn and Munster, I think. And then he comes to the attention of Cardinal Frings, who was the Archbishop of, of Cologne. And this was the time to be a theologian because this was when Vatican II was just being you know, talked about and then getting underway. And the leading uh, bishops wanted uh, periti, that's the Latin for like theological experts to bring with them. And so Frings has the brilliant idea to bring along this um, startlingly bright young theologian. So to Rome in 1962 comes Josef Ratzinger. He's there for all the sessions of the council. Despite his youth, he plays an outsized role at Vatican II, helping to write some of the major documents in dialogue with all the major players, helping to explain the council to those around him. I have argued for a long time, it's the central event of his life. He's, he's a man of the Second Vatican Council, a player at it. Um, during the council, if you want to put it this way, a liberal, because he was for the reforms of the council against those forces that were resisting uh, the conciliar reforms. But then, of course, uh, very quickly after the council, he becomes an equally vehement critic of a Catholic progressivism that he saw as going beyond the conciliar text, as claiming a magisterium for itself, of threatening the integrity of the Catholic tradition. And so he becomes an outspoken opponent of that. So by 19, let's say, 75, the liberals become a conservative, even though he himself hasn't changed his thinking at all. And he said that at one point. I find it very credible, having read him a lot over the years. He didn't change. But he, he remained steadfast against these two um, ways of resisting Vatican II, let's say. And I think that's the key now to understanding him. He is a man of the council who wants to defend it against its conservative and its liberal critics. Now, he finds a very like-minded friend in Karl Wojtyla. He would have known him at Vatican II because Wojtyla was the Archbishop of Krakow, so he was there as a father of the council. Ratzinger was a paritist. They would have known each other. But they really came to know each other, they say, during the conclaves of 1978, you know, the year of the three popes. So they were both cardinals by that time. Ratzinger had been um, made Archbishop of Munich and then was quickly named a cardinal by Paul VI. So he and Wojtyla are together at those conclaves. And I think Wojtyla realized this man's a kindred spirit to me. So then when Wojtyla becomes John Paul II, he taps Ratzinger as his head of doctrine. So then for about 25 years, Cardinal Ratzinger became very well known as the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. I think the best way to read his work during those years is what I just said. He was a defender of the right interpretation of Vatican II and holding off its critics on both left and right. Um, elected Pope at the death of John Paul II in 2005, even though he was pretty old, he was 78 in 2005. And I remember that very well that a lot of people thought, well, sure, he's great, but he's just too old to be Pope. He gives a, a sermon um, at the mass preparing for the conclave. And he used that famous phrase, the dictatorship of relativism. We'll come back to that. It's one of the key themes of his life and thought, I think. But um, the Cardinals, I think, realized pretty quickly, look, I know he's 78, but this is the man that can carry on the legacy of John Paul II. So he's elected Pope in 2005, takes the name Benedict XVI, and then reigns for eight years. 
So not a short papacy. It was kind of a standard length papacy. And then, of course, famously, 2013, he resigns the papacy. The first one to do it in, what was it, Brandon, 700 years or something. Uh, I remember those days very well. I was doing commentary for NBC News at the time, and there was so much interest in the fact of his resignation and the election of his successor. And then the last... Um, you know, 10 years or so, he's um, living in, in uh, kind of retreat and isolation in the uh, Vatican Gardens. So that's, if you want, the arc of a rather extraordinary life that's just come to an end. Let's go back to those years in the early to mid-60s, which marked the most yeah. defining and important time, I think, in, in Ratzinger's life and in the life of the church. The Second Vatican Council, arguably the most important event in the last yeah. hundred years in the church. You mentioned that he was attending the council as an expert, a sort of theological mm -hmm. consultant. I marvel at the fact that he shows up as a, I think a 35 year old, maybe 36 years old, I'm 36, thinking like someone my age going to all these, the, the brightest theologians in the world and helping to author the documents, giving consultation. It's, it's remarkable, but tell us a little bit more about his influence on the council. How does the, the uh, conciliar documents bear his fingerprints? And then after the council, how did the council impact him? How did he impact the council? How did the council impact him? Well, to say, first of all, he was a kind of wunderkind, to use that wonderful uh, German word. He's kind of this wonder child. You know, like, how did this happen? When I was 35, I got my doctorate when I was about 32. I just started teaching at Mundelein. And right, I would have felt completely incapable of operating at that level of, of theological, you know, sophistication. But they, they just recognized his gifts very early on. Now, what did he bring? See, Ratzinger was very much a theologian of the ressourcement movement, so-called. Um, when he was going to school, and most people of the Vatican II generation, they would have been formed in the standard neo-scholasticism of the time. Now, we, we don't have time to get into all those details, but a kind of, call it rationalistic revival of Thomism. Think of a figure like um, Gary Goudagrange, who would have been a typical theologian of that time and school. A number of figures, Omri Lubach comes to mind, Danielu comes to mind, Urs von Balthasar comes to mind, resisted neo-scholasticism, and they called for less of a rationalism and more of a return to the sources. So the French call this the eau source movement sometimes, back to the sources, namely the Bible and the church fathers. And there are a lot of reasons for that move, but one was that they just found that theology, I think, more spiritually engaging and more appealing to the imagination. They also thought it would be a better vehicle for the dialogue with the modern world. And there's much more we could say about it, but the young Ratzinger, it's fair to say, becomes a devotee of that school. He studies St. Bonaventure, and that's interesting in itself because if Thomas Aquinas was the dominant figure of the time, it's interesting that this young wunderkind theologian says, I'm not going to study Aquinas, I'm going to study his counterpart, the Franciscan Bonaventure, who represents a very different theological style and school, namely the Franciscan and behind that, the Augustinian. So you want the two figures that really impact the young Ratzinger, I'd say Bonaventure and behind him, Augustine. And he said many times, Augustine, he's my master. He's the one, if I were on a desert island, I'd bring the Bible and I'd bring the confessions. You know, he, that Augustine was his great teacher. I think that's, Brandon, what he brought to Vatican II was a keen sense of the, of the ressourcement, 
which they saw as not just a sort of retrieval of old stuff. They saw it as a means by which the church could enter into more creative dialogue with the contemporary society. More to it, they saw it as a more effective vehicle for a conversation with Protestantism because they felt that the church had gotten kind of stuck in the 16th century debates. And then the Catholic Church, you know, embracing a neo-Thomism that was fiercely anti-Protestant. Why not, some of them suggested, let's go back to a time before the 16th century, before the Protestant-Catholic split. And can we find some common ground in the Bible and the Fathers? So that, I think, was another inspiration for the Ressourcement move. But that's, I think, what he brought um, to the Council. Now, what did the Council bring to him? Um, I think it just shaped him in almost every way. I think it became the defining event of his life, that defending it and propagating it became his central preoccupation. Um, the church in dialogue with the modern world. Now, he saw Catholic progressivism as overstating that to some degree, doing it awkwardly, uh, caving in too much to the world. So he's, he's not naive about that. But he never abandoned the great Elan of, of Vatican II. I remember, I don't know if it was a video or if I read it in an interview. He was there for the great, it's called the Discorso de, de la Luna, the, the discourse uh, under the moon. It's when John the 23rd, the opening of Vatican II, the night of, of the opening, he appears at the window and there's this huge candlelight procession going on and there's a full moon shining. And find it on YouTube, it's very moving because he had this wonderful resonant kind of deep voice and he's addressing the crowds and he's talking about the, the moon is looking down upon this great you know, spectacle. Well, Ratzinger said you know, he was there for that. He was somewhere in that crowd. And he still remains enchanted by that moment, you know, when John the 23rd was kind of celebrating the importance of the council. So I, I think that's it. Maybe something worth mentioning, too. He might be, Brandon, the last major player of Vatican II uh, to, to be alive. You know, he came as a very young man. So think the, the bishops, I think, who are at Vatican II, maybe there are some exceptions, but they're almost all gone or... And then even the Pariti, the Pariti, I think most of them. Hans Kung, who would have been younger than, than Ratzinger, he's gone. Um, in a way, his death, it, it's, the, it's the ringing down of the curtain on, on Vatican II in some ways. Uh, there, there won't be anybody with a living memory of it. You know, this long dual papacy of John Paul II and Benedict XVI was noted for its expansive outward turn toward the world. So you have John Paul yeah. II traveling to more countries than any previous pope. He was the great evangelist. He proposed the gospel to the wider world. But then you have Benedict XVI, who was a noted public intellectual in a way that many past popes haven't. In fact, uh, hadn't been. In fact, you, you could describe him as one of the theological and intellectual giants of the last hundred years. And again, not just within the church, but on the, the broader uh, intellectual landscape. Mm -hmm. For example, he was uh, an interlocutor with many other renowned intellectuals, such as Jürgen Habermas. Um, he instituted the Courtyard of the Gentiles Project, which was meant to be a sophisticated outreach to the realm of, of arts and media, etc. Um, how would you describe Benedict XVI's tone for the church's engagement with the wider world, and what lessons can we draw from it today? He was very much in the patristic uh, spirit. And the fathers gave us that sense of the semina verbi, right? The seeds of the word. 
So if we hold that Jesus is the Logos, well, then anything that's logical is related to him. There's the, if you want, the central teaching of his famous um, Regensburg speech that was so controversial because of his citation of a, of a medieval critic of, of Islam. But the, the central point of that talk is really interesting. If Jesus is not just one figure among many, but he's the incarnation of the very mind of God, then anything logical, whether it's in the sciences or it's in philosophy or it's in uh, cultural forms, well, that's a cousin of Christianity. That's a relative of Christianity. And if Jesus is the Word, well, then there are semina verbi, there are seeds of the Word all over the place. And so the job of the church is to find those and to engage those and maybe water those and see if they grow. I think that was the key to his engagement. Now, see, notice something interesting there is it begins Christologically. It's not a surrender to the world. And if, if I might, in his spirit, offer a critique of Catholic liberalism, that could be the tendency to surrender the church too much in the enthusiasm to embrace the world that we, we lose Catholic particularity. Well, see, Ratzinger operated out of that wonderful paradox that, no, it's actually the more authentically Christian you are, the better you are at engaging in dialogue with the wider culture. And if you, if you say, no, no, I'm going to leave my Christianity behind so I can enter the dialogue, it'll end up being a dysfunctional dialogue. And I think that's how we would have critiqued Catholic progressivism. Um, I think that's the contribution, Brandon, that he made. And uh, that's, that's an important one. It's patristic, it's very ancient, but it's very important for our time too. I want to dig a little bit deeper into that particular idea and some of his other ideas. But before we do, I wanted to ask you about any personal memories or encounters you had with him. I know you met him maybe once, twice, and you've heard him many times speak. What are your personal memories of Benedict XVI? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really know him. I met him precisely once. I was over in Rome. Uh, it was right after he was elected Pope. It was 2006, maybe. And we were having an event in Chicago called 24 Hours of Grace, where we were offering confession for 24 hours. So I, I was in Rome for something else. I forget what it was. And I had procured these um, purple stoles that the priests were going to wear during this. And somehow I got in the, the prima fila, they call it, the, the first row at the audience. And the Pope came by, and it's noisy. And I shouted something like, hi, I'm, I'm Father Barron from Chicago. And could you bless these stoles? And so then he solemnly blessed them. And we have a photo of that. But that's the one time I met uh, Josef Ratzinger. But I did um, see him a lot when I was in Rome in 2007. So I was there as a scholar in residence at the uh, North American College. And on Wednesday, as you know, the Pope typically has an audience uh, during the bad weather, it's inside. In nicer weather, it's out on the square. So I was there during nicer months. And I made a point of going to practically all of those um, audience talks. The ones I heard were on the great theologians. They were on some of the fathers, then the medieval doctors. And so here's this figure who himself was like a church father talking about these figures. And, you know, his command of languages, his erudition, uh, his, his articulate um, manner of thinking, all that was on display. But what, what really struck me was his, his love for the Lord. I mean, he was someone who was in a deep friendship with Christ. And you saw it in his manner of being and his gesture and his tone of voice. 
um, those are enduring memories for me. To be present, it was sort of like being there when John Chrysostom was giving a sermon or, or when Augustine or Ambrose was speaking. That's how it felt to me. Um, and I still remember those with great fondness and great spiritual uh, you know, profit. Well, I'd like to spend the rest of our discussion here exploring some of Benedict's key ideas and contributions. Now, just as it's impossible to summarize his whole life in just a couple minutes, yeah. it's impossible to sum up his intellectual contributions. He's written 65 plus books, three encyclicals, countless speeches, letters, homilies. So this is necessarily a very truncated summary. Um, but I think that these five lessons represent some of his lasting legacy. So. The first one, true reform versus false reform in the church. Reform was a major buzzword throughout his life, especially before, during, and immediately after the Second Vatican Council. But he went to great lengths to ensure that reform was properly oriented. And in particular, he introduced these two phrases, the hermeneutic of continuity versus the hermeneutic of rupture. I know rupture, those are long yeah. technical phrases, but... Um, how did Pope Benedict understand reform, and why did he think it was needed in the 20th century church? Yeah, and you mentioned when you say true and false reform, you're referring to Eve Congar, who was uh, maybe the most important uh, theological figure at Vatican II. His famous text, Vrai, False Reform dans l'Église. Um, Ratzinger would have read that with great interest, and I think would have subscribed to it. And, and you, you put your finger on it, Brandon, with the, the different hermeneutics. He didn't like the progressive or liberal interpretation that saw Vatican II as a rupture. And I'll say this, when I was, I was a little kid uh, going to Catholic grade school in the years after Vatican II, and that was very much the way it was presented to us. Vatican II was a revolution. There was darkness before, then there was this great burst of light in 1965, and then we've been living in the, in the luminosity of Vatican II since then. It, it was presented very much as a, a revolution, not an evolution. Where he would have adopted, another hero of his was John Henry Newman. It, it might have been Rossinger that led me to Newman, who became a hero to me. But, you know, Newman, who famously talks about the development of doctrine, yes, indeed. But uh, doctrine develops in an evolving way. It, it doesn't... Um, it doesn't lose contact with its past, doesn't become something else. It unfolds its own true meaning and integrity. So I think Ratzinger would have seen that's what's happening at Vatican II. Now, was it needed? Sure. You know, look at the, the liturgical reforms. Um, Ratzinger would have been very much a devotee of um, Romano Guardini and of a liturgical movement. These are the people going back now to the, the 10s and 20s and 30s in, in Germany and Europe and then our country who are saying, look, the liturgy has become so ossified that most Catholics have no connection to it. They don't know what's going on. It's, it, we want full, conscious, and active participation, you know, all of those things. Uh, Ratzinger would have been very much behind that and would have supported, you know, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the great statement of Vatican II on liturgy. He would have subscribed to another hero of his, Urs von Balthasar, who said the church has been crouching behind its medieval walls too long. It's time to raise the bastions and to get the church out into the world. He would have subscribed very strongly to that. Um, you know, so read the great texts, many of which he helped to write. Uh, Lumen Gentium, a new way of thinking about the church, or it's called a, an evolution in our understanding of the church. Not starting so much top down, but beginning with the people of God and the universal call to holiness. And he would have subscribed to all that. 
um, you know, so I think that's how he he um, saw himself in relation to to Vatican II. Let's talk about a second lesson, which is liturgical renewal. Uh, you mentioned yeah. the name Romano Guardini, who famously yeah. wrote a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy. Uh, Joseph Ratzinger later wrote a, a subsequent mm -hmm. book with that same title and in the same yeah. vein. Uh, Guardini was one of the figureheads of this 20th century liturgical movement. As you say, Ratzinger was attracted to that. Um, how did how did he specifically contribute to the liturgical renewal of recent decades? Well, that's a very interesting question. And this is where things get intriguing because as I say, the young Ratzinger, you know, following Guardini and, and many others, Karl Adam in Germany, uh, think of people like Virgil Michael over here, would have, you know, seen the, the need for this great reform of the liturgy. Now, fast forward to when Josef Ratzinger writes his own book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. <laughs> By that time, the reform of the council had given rise, he thought, to some real distortions of the liturgy that the liturgy had become too much focused on us. It was anthropocentric rather than Christocentric. Uh, it had become, you know, too much of a this worldly celebration of the community rather than a participation in the mystery of redemption, et cetera. Uh, and so by that time, he's a critic, more conservative critic, let's say, of what had happened with the liturgy after the council. Again, it's that, it's that idea of Ratzinger at the council, the liberal, right, calling for liturgical reform, but then decades later, Ratzinger, the conservative, was saying, well, wait a minute, but what happened to the liturgy was not really what Vatican II had in mind. So I, I think he contributes at both stages of his career, if you want. He contributes as a liberal at the council, and he contributes as a more a conservative critic later in his, in his career. And I think both are very important moments. Um, and look at our dialogue today, Brandon. Uh, there are still people today, liturgically, who say, look, the whole Vatican II thing, that was a big mistake. Let's go back to the way it was. Or people on the progressive left, like, you know, let's keep changing the liturgy until it becomes unrecognizable. Both Ratzinger's, or let's say Ratzinger looking both ways, you know, of the 60s and the 90s, are, are both needed. They're both needed today. A third major lesson we can take away from the life and teachings of Benedict is the importance of the Bible for theology. Mm -hmm. Now, Ratzinger Benedict wasn't a biblical scholar per se in the terms we've been mm -hmm. used today, but he was definitely a biblical theologian, meaning one who incorporates and uses scripture heavily throughout his theologizing. Um, he also came of age in a period where the historical critical method was in vogue, and a lot of his career was was in with engagement uh, with that theory. What did Benedict teach about the Bible and its role in theology? It's a very interesting thing. And again, the length of his life and his career uh, contribute to the to the complexity of the thing. Uh, I mentioned he's a ressourcement theologian. One of the problems that, that a lot of the um, people that taught him had with neo-scholasticism was it's it's lack of biblical reference. They, they thought it was too much of a deductively rationalistic philosophical approach to religion. And so the recovery of the Bible becomes key for them. Now, who had that in their bones but the church fathers? So you can't read Augustine. Augustine is a philosophically brilliant figure, obviously, but he's basically he's a biblical theologian. Read someone like Origen, 
who's just, he's animated at every turn by the Bible. The great preachers like Ambrose and Chrysostom, and, and then Jerome, who's the great biblical figure. The fathers were, were immersed in the Bible. So that's an opening move that Ratzinger makes to say that we need a ressourcement that brings us back to the Bible. Then to your second point, fast forward from the council of the 60s to 1988, and to text that I think is one of the most important that Ratzinger wrote. And it was at a conference sponsored by Richard John Newhouse in New York. At the time, Newhouse was still a Lutheran. He was about to become a Roman Catholic. But it was a, a conference on the Bible. And some of the leading figures, uh, Raymond E. Brown himself was there. So some of the leading figures in Catholic biblical scholarship, most of whom operated out of the historical critical method. And Ratzinger gives this um, kind of programmatic speech not rejecting historical criticism, but of say, saying it needs to be complemented and supplemented in all sorts of ways. And what he was suggesting was a more patristic way of doing it. Uh, that speech had a huge impact on a lot of us. I'll include myself there. Um, 88, where was I? I was two years ordained to the priesthood at that point. Uh, I would have been formed almost entirely in an historical critical approach to the Bible. Um, I don't know when I first read Ratzinger's speech. It wasn't in 1988, but um, it led me, I'll, I'll confess, to say, yeah, we need to think about this thing differently. Most of the work I've done with the Bible has been very much animated by this Ratzingerian ressourcement move. Well, as we wrap up, I want to share with all of our listeners that Word on Fire has built a new website centered around Pope Benedict XVI that features all of Bishop Barron's and Word on Fire's resources on this great man and his thinking. So multiple articles, videos, homilies, podcasts. Um, you can find that at wordonfire.org slash Benedict resources. I'll, of course, include a link in the show notes. Well, thanks all of you for listening and watching this special episode dedicated to Pope Benedict XVI, and we'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show. You were listening to a pre-recorded uh, reflection by Bishop Robert Barron, an interview on Word on Fire um, with the death and passing of uh, Pope Benedict XVI. I mean, that, that can be found on wordonfire.org. Uh, um, just Bishop Barron, again, the, the Bishop of Diocese of Rochester, Winona, sharing his reflections on uh, Pope Benedict the 16th. We're going to be taking a break here uh, shortly and then on the other side of the break we're going to be speaking with the executive director of the South Dakota Right to Life uh, Dale Bartscher. Um, you're, you're listening to Real Presence Live. I'm your host Blake Ritterman, and we'll see you on the other side of the break. Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network.